You're listening to to the Show We Go Baseball podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome into episode 49 of To the Show We Go. We have Ed Hand and myself, Andrew Parker. Today's episode, uh, we have a special guest. Um, we are going non-player side now. Our last episode was with Zach Kelly of the Red Sox, so please go check that one out if you have not. Today's episode, we have a celebrity for me, and I know for Ed as well, but I've been following the site for as long as I can remember, probably since high school for me. Um, I'm getting old. I'm turning 30 this year, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting up there. But um, we have SoxProspects.com's own Ian Cundle today. Now, Ian, I, uh, I've i never gotten the chance to like completely get to know you. I, I think I saw you in Worcester at one point this year. Um, but I mean, I'm in Worcester a lot, so probably. But okay. I also I, don't really go into the press box, so. Yeah. I think I saw you sneak in there one time for a uh, for game notes or something, and I, I think my buddy Chris Henrique was like, "It was that Ian Condo," and I'm like, "I have no idea," but we should have <laughs> said something. But Ian, we are happy to have you, and I just wanted to ask before we dive into some baseball things, like, what? How's your off season been? Like, what kind of things are you up to when uh, when baseball is not going on? Um. Well, thank you for having me. It's a uh, it's a pleasure. Um. It's nice to. You know, I see your guys' uh, faces all over Twitter these days because you're one of the most viral Sox, Red Sox podcasts around or baseball podcasts around, at least in my feed. So it's uh, nice to be able to get on and be able to talk shop a little bit. And uh, my offseason is solely devoted to one thing, and that's college football right now because I have a national championship to worry about this weekend. And uh, that's literally all I'm focused on right now. So I I had that. This is my uh, one distraction, my one time I'm not going to be thinking about Michigan for the next 72 hours or however long it is till Monday. I want to slip in a college football question before we shoot to you, Ed, and we can start it off. But um, both of us are are fans of colleges of the Block M. Yeah. Both I mean, of those teams have beaten the Ohio State this year. So yeah. I think we can get along with that a little bit. I 100% agree. I thoroughly enjoyed your game. Um, I thought it was, it was really nice to see um ryan day learn what life is like without kyle mccord after running him out of town um so i i think that you know maybe he should have put a little more respect on michigan's name and realized that hey maybe kyle mccord wasn't the problem um we just played a juggernaut which is what happened and i'm glad that missouri was able to show them that you know hey just running your qb out of town isn't always the answer ryan day maybe you should take some accountability and take look at yourself in the mirror because you're a terrible coach but anyway uh back to baseball let's do it yeah, so I, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask the elephant in the room. Beloved pitcher is gone. New guy is here. Max Castillo, the newest pitcher on the 40 man <laughs> roster, and Mauricio Yavaro is 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 gone. Uh, any any thoughts on uh, on that that blockbuster, uh, Max Castillo? Um, no, not really. <laughs> I remember <laughs> when it happened. I was, I was. I was, I think I was in the middle of, I was in, I was doing something and I, I texted a few people and everyone was just like, um, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a move on the peripheries. Um, you know, nice story. We'll see what they can do. I, I just think it's really hard. And I, I think you have to view all the, the moves they're making with the pitching staff, especially this off season in the context of it's just going to be an entirely new infrastructure at the top. And so it's really hard to have many takeaways because we just don't know how they're going to be using those guys. We don't know what they're going to be prioritizing. We don't know what the points of emphasis are going to be in spring training. And I think it's, it's hard to have a feel for all these new faces coming in and you can, it's all well and good to be able to look at their stack ass data, look at, you know, talk to scouts who've seen them in the past, but at the end of the day, we don't know what these new, what the new guys, what Justin Willard, what Andrew Bailey, et cetera, Craig Breslow even are going to be prioritizing with them. So, you know, they could bring in Castillo and if he was a four seam guy last year, maybe they want him to become a cutter guy. Maybe they could like, we just don't know yet. And so I, I think it's hard to have too many hot takes on these, uh, these kind of peripheral roster moves when it comes to pitchers. Yeah, were you surprised to see a go? Uh, not really. I, I think that there's, there's some fungible depth depth at the end of the 40 man. And he was right on that list. I, I think that w- this is what we're going to see. We're going to see, you know, 
they're going to target their specific guys. And if someone they like becomes available, I, I think we're going to keep seeing guys who are kind of holdovers from the previous roster, especially on the pitching side, get get rotated out as more and more guys that they like become available. Did you see, because you're talking about like, um, and I've heard like, on the Sox Prospects uh, pod, you've talked about this a, a bit too, but um, a, a change in the infrastructure with how development works. Have you seen a, throughout the years, because we've go through um, like the head executive in charge, like every four years now, have you seen a big <laughs> change between Charrington to Dombrowski to Bloom? And obviously we can't comment on Breslow now, but um, does it, ha- has there been a substantial change throughout the years? Cause it seems like pitching development is something the Red Sox have struggled with. Like every 20 years or so they'll develop somebody, but it just seems like it's usually trader free agency. I think that's it's it's a hard question though because I think there's been so many advances in the way pitching is being developed, especially with like the um, use of technology. And right now we've got like you know the the pitch data that they can get, but then also like the Rapsodo, you know, charting basically every movement the body makes. That's just stuff we did that wasn't readily available five ten years ago. And so I think it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges when you're talking about developing a pitcher in 2012 versus developing a pitcher in 2023 because the stuff that every pitcher has available now is just insane like trackman wasn't a thing back then or if it was it was barely used and now there's just so much technology involved with pitching that i think that has obviously been one of the evolutions is that now you know the red Sox have really bought into that you you see you know where the pitching coach hires are coming from they're all coming a lot of them are coming from those you know the pitching academies the drive lines or the other ones all around the u.s there's plenty of big ones um and you see like the red Sox pitchers are going to all these places during the offseason and I, I think, you know, even heard like when Justin Willard talked about it, um, I can't remember, it was on a podcast when he was with the twins, but he talked about, you know, the emphasis of having to merge, like using all that available information that you can gather through those, you know, technology and those other things, but also with, you know, his points of emphasis and, you know, things like, you know, velocity stuff and, and, and maximizing that. And I think that that is the part I'm most interested to see because you, you can kind of look at what they've drafted, especially too. There hasn't it a lot of the last couple of years. It seems like it's been a lar- large reliance on things like pitch shape, um, and you know what grades out well on the analytically on the models and stuff. And it seems like now this new front office just this is obviously we're gonna have to see it in action. So this is just based on what I've just read and you know heard some uh, some podcasts and interviews with um, like Justin Willard, Breslow, et cetera. It's, it seems like it's going to be more of an emphasis on stuff. And I think what we've seen in going out with their um, their moves this offseason, the pitchers they've targeted are a lot more stuff-based than we, what we saw under High and Bloom for um, some of the acquisitions. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily know they would have gone out and targeted someone like – I don't I, – obviously just speculating but someone like in the the uh alex redugo trade someone like nicholas judice is the third piece in that trade he didn't even pitch last year but he throws really hard and he's huge and you know those are two things you can't really teach and when you look at the red sox drafts obviously they haven't spent as many resources on pitching over the last couple of years but you're not really going and you know taking those hard throwing guys with fringy secondaries and you know, really questionable command. It's more, you know, the Matt Duffy types, like the polished four or five pitch guys who probably have a couple pitches that, um, that look, you know, the couple potential pitches that are really good, but the fastball might be a bit light. Or even, you know, you look at some of the other guys they've taken. Um, it's more projection. It's, you know, Elmer Rodriguez Cruz, who's really, really skinny and throws like 88 right now, but we think, hey, maybe he can be, you know, 92 to 94, which is, uh, he's up, you know, in the low 90s now. But um, whereas, you know, it seems like now it's, they're targeting some more now stuff that we can kind of work around the edges and, and figure out the more finer points of pitching um, once we get them in the system. And so uh, going off of like what you had kind of just said there, and uh, you had, you said off air that you had spent a lot of time uh, in Worcester this past year. Um, and I, I got, I pretty much was there at every single home game and I was seeing the pitching staff every single night have a ton of trouble, especially early in the season kind of before they signed Barraclaw, but um, what do you think about how they're, how they overhauled like the triple a pitching staff as a whole? Because I, I just peeked in, I got the Sox prospects tab open at all times on the uh, 2024 projected rosters and their bullpen is completely different than what it was at this point last year. I just feel like they have so many guys that are ready, like that could be called upon like for the majors, if there are injuries, which are going to happen. Um, so I, I guess my question is like from where it's at right now, and it's going to change a little bit before opening day. I get that, but where it is now compared to where it was at this point last year is 
completely different. So what what have you thought about like how they're shaping AAA? Well, I, I think that one thing that, I mean, people know about it, but I don't think people really understand how big an impact it has was the automatic automated strike zone in AAA really messed with pitchers. And I don't think it's, you know, you just look at the numbers and obviously the walk rate was up like a ton uh, across baseball. And I think Baseball America did some really good like data on this. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like, I know just talking to scouts who watch AAA and it's just like a, you're basically pitching with two different rules from what was it? Tuesday to Thursday and then Friday to Sunday. And, you know, there are certain things that when, when you're working with pitchers on execution, a pitch in double A that, you know, is a strike 10 times out of 10 just isn't a strike anymore. And things like that was a really, I think a real rude awakening for a lot of pitchers. I think Shane Drohan's a good example of that. He's someone that the stuff isn't overwhelming, but you know, he got it to a point where it was workable at double A. He goes up to triple A and you know, those pitches on the edges that were a strike for him in double A just aren't a strike anymore. And he has to pitch more over the plate or where he gets hit hard. And then the corollary from that is, okay, I'm now getting hit when I throw it over the plate. I'm going to try and nibble a little more, going to keep it off the plate a little more. I'm not getting chases anymore. And I think everything just spiraled. And I, I, I do wonder how much of an impact that had um, on the pitching staff when the mindset, because we know how mental, how much of a mental game pitching is. And if you're going in and you're, you know, you're used to a certain thing and you're experiencing this entirely different way balls and strikes get called, I, th- I think it really can mess with you and kind of change the way you approach pitching. And obviously you guys would talk, you guys talk to players more than I do. So maybe you'd have a better feel. I don't know if you've asked anyone about that specifically, but I just, I just know from talking to scouts and some, some, some people who work with, with the players, um, that that was something that they identified as was a pretty big change. And I think was a large, you know, kind of a big shift that we hadn't had to deal with before. And I think something that staffs are still trying to kind of understand how to, how to adjust to. Um, but I think that as a whole, when you look at that AAA pitching staff, that that was clearly something that Craig Breslow has prioritized. And I think Ian Bloom did the same thing. You know, the idea was to, to build as much depth as possible when it came to the pitchers so that you have those interchangeable parts at the back that if, you know, if you need to deep dip down to the AAA level, you have big league caliber arms, because as we saw a couple of years ago with the Red Sox, when you don't have enough depth there, that's when you get into big trouble. You know, that's when you're having to start Ryan Weber a bunch or things like that. And I, I think the number one goal is that this season is to not have to, to that every pitcher you run out there, you're com- comfortable in and you're not going to run into a situation like last year, even too, where they had the Kyle Bear, Bear claw game where I, I mean, I saw him in triple A and I thought he could be, you know, semi useful in a short burst, but you don't want to ever run into a situation where you have to have a guy wear it like that. And so I think with the, uh, the amount of arms and the volume of arms they've gone out and got and how they're kind of like distributing, distributing things down more where, you know, if we get this guy who's an up, who's a marginal upgrade at triple or at the major league level, but it pushes someone like Isaiah Campbell to triple a. So now we have this, you know, MLB caliber arm ready to go there. I think it's really setting themselves up to be able to withstand any potential injuries more so than they've been, um, than they were set the last couple of seasons. Yeah, there's been a bunch of these, um, I guess I would I would call them last man in the pen type or, you know, like middle relievers, uh, Weissert, Slayton, the Rule 5 pick, uh, Campbell you mentioned, but there's guys that were already there too, like Zach Kelly. Um, yeah. Are there any of those guys that you see as having a higher chance at making an impact this season? Or are they all sort of interchangeable right now? Well, I, I think that you have to look at, and it, it it's unfortunate, but I think two of them have a leg up because of their roster like rules. Um, Slayton and Brian Mata both yeah. have to be on the active roster or they're not going to be in the organization. And so because Brian Mata is out of options and Slayton was a rule five pick. So I think those two are going to be given the first chance to get on the roster. But I just I look at the team is currently constructed and obviously there's still time to make a trade. And we've heard the, the rumors that they've been shopping someone like Kenley Jansen, which is not surprising. It makes a lot of sense, given the way the team is um, kind of projecting the season. But there might not be room for both those guys. And I, I think, though, that because just just in the in the idea of you know having as much depth as possible you're going to give those guys every chance ahead of some of the other guys who have options left. And it's an unfortunate, you know, byproduct of the way the rules are designed. But if you have options, you're more valuable, you know, in AAA than the majors, if they have someone kind of equal. So I, I think that there's definitely going to be a competition for those last few spots, but I think that you have to look at Slayton as Mata as having the upper hand because of their, you know, they're gone if they're not on the active roster. That makes a lot of sense. Now, hypothetically, if they were to trade Jansen, do you think Chris Martin would step in as the closer or do you think it would be somebody totally different? I mean, I, I personally think it. I would like to see Tanner Houck try it out in that role. Um, I, I just think with Martin, 
it, it, it's it's not broken. Let's not try to mess with it. Like let's keep him in the eighth inning. He was probably the best eighth or one of the you know top five eighth inning guys in all of baseball last year. He's already 37 years old. I just I don't think it's necessary to try him in a new role, especially when you have someone like Hauk who has had success in that role in the past. And I think when you look at the way they're trending with the rotation, I know they've talked about how they're going to they wanted to be stretched out over the offseason. But I just when I look at what they've the way the roster is kind of falling out right now, I just don't think there's room for guys like him and Whitlock in the rotation is currently constructed. Yeah, which is interesting because I know on the um, on the uh, projected 2024 roster, Winkowski's listed as a starter in AAA. Um, is that something that's been confirmed that that's going to happen, or is it just because of the roster construction right now it makes more sense? I think it's just roster construction. I mean, I know Alex Cora, I think they've talked about how they want him to – they're keeping their options open with him, but I just – when you look at the roster, again, it's – he has options, and – you know, you probably want to, you, you need a couple guys who can start and have length down there. And when you look at the available guys, um, most of the guys on the 40 are going to be relievers. So if you're, you know, if you're committing to, and obviously Whitlock and how are going to be on the MLB team, but if you're committing to them in the bullpen, you need, you need some guys who can give you length in triple a on the 40. And I think that's the role Castillo can play. It's role someone like a Brandon Walter, um, Cooper Criswell, the new signing, and then someone like Winkowski, cause he's done it before. But um, I, I think that's that's like a fluid one. That's just basically a numbers game right now until we see kind of what happens with more of the the current bullpen. Because I, 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 as I said, I, I think they're it seems likely they're going to end up trading someone from that group um, at some point this offseason. I'm not going to make you go like in depth on this because you, Chris Hatfield and our guy, Chris Clegg, put out a, um, a I think an ep- a podcast right before New Year's Eve on the sale Grissom trade, mm-hmm. um, which we had Chris Clegg on our show. And he is just awesome to talk he's to. Like that guy's, yeah, yeah, his knowledge is insane. Yeah, he's but, great. He's been he's been helping us for a while. Um, he's really good down because he's based down in Greenville. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but. Oh. My, I guess, uh, not to like make you have to repeat yourself again, because if you want to go hear a lot of the Sox prospects thoughts, go listen to that episode. But, um, what is your, I guess, what were your immediate thoughts whenever you saw the return for sale? Um, I mean, I, I thought it made sense. I, I think that you have to view the trade, in my opinion, from the lens of you're not only, getting sales money off the books, which you reallocated to, you know, Giolito plus whatever, or someone else. I mean, I know they're only saving like 9 million, but the spot, et cetera, but also that you're filling the second base hole. And obviously that was something that they need to go out and get a second baseman. I don't think any of the internal options were either ready or capable of handle, handling that role every day. Um, and so I think that, you know, you, you were able to get a guy at the minimum who you, ha- you have under team control for six years for Chris Sale basically as a rental because they weren't going to extend him. And I don't think they were going to pick up that option either. So I, I think for where how the team is currently constructed, um, it fits both teams' needs well because the Braves are a team that's built to win. You know, they're going to push for the World Series this year. They have arguably the best lineup in baseball. Maybe the Dodgers are the only one close to them. And the the question marks with them with their pitching staff, you know, they needed some more big game guys. We saw how at the end of last season, how injured their staff got. And with the Red Sox, they didn't really have an MLB ready second baseman, you know, and I personally, and I know Ed and I disagree on this. I had no interest in going out and spending money on Whit Merrifield at any price. Um, I didn't really think that any of the free agent options were that appealing, especially when, you know, they're going to cost eight, nine, $10 million a year where I'd rather, you know, go out and address that via the trade. And I obviously didn't see the Grissom trade coming, but I I think it's a nice upside play at second base for them for this year. And hopefully, you know, the next five to six years and, uh, allows frees up some money to spend towards the rotation or maybe even an outfielder at some point. Yeah. I was ecstatic about that trade. Um, Merrifield was the best second base option, which was the point that I kept trying to emphasize. Uh, yeah, but just because he's the, there doesn't mean he's good. No, though. exactly. Just because he's good. Just because it's like if it, 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 it's like a shit on a rock versus shit on a stick, it's still shit. Um, not to call with Merrifield that, but <laughs> Von Grissom comp is it, it's just a much better option. I didn't think someone like that was going to be available to them, especially at a price like Chris Sale, like which again fits the Braves five. Yeah, it's, the Red Sox. It, so I it, think it, I was thrilled. It's. I think it's just. Yeah, it comes down to that. And I, I credit to Craig Breslow. I think it's a really creative way to address the second base hole. You know, they didn't have to give up any prospects. And basically, you know, this offseason, you swapped out Giolito for Sale. You know, the outfielders flipped, 
and you netted a second baseman and a bunch of prospects. And I, I think that when you view it kind of all the move, moves complementary, the offseason so far, yes, it's not obviously what Red Sox fans had wanted, I think, so far. But it makes a lot of sense. And they're getting younger. They're getting more athletic. And they're building more depth. And I, I think that, you know, that's it seems like that's the route the team is, has chosen to go, uh, has chosen to pursue going forward. And that's the route you're, you're doing. You got to buy, you know, you got to go for it. And that's what they're doing with these moves, I think, is, you know, they're they're addressing needs and they're upgrading the major league roster incrementally but at the same time they're building that depth and getting you know younger more athletic in areas in areas that they kind of weren't they didn't have mlb caliber mlb depth players ready readily available at for this coming season i had a question on the Sox prospects rankings um they come out every month and it's uh I, f- I feel like whenever they do come out it's one of those things i always see tyler milliken and a bunch of people like freak out about it and it's great <laughs> um how hard is it to you have two all-around guys expect i'm for example i'm just gonna give an example of like roman anthony and marcel meyer even though it's probably not the greatest um i guess the greatest comparison of what i'm trying to say but how hard is it when you have two guys that both are deserving of a spot, even if it's two guys battling for spot number five, spot number 10, like whatever it is, how hard is it to be like, we think this guy is going to be better than this guy? Oh, I mean, it's not something we take lightly. And I, I think it's definitely more difficult at the top because I, I, we talked about it a lot, but um, it's, you know, as you move down the list, things get more fluid. You know, it, it's kind of, I think a better way to look at it would be like tiers. You know, this is the top tier. This is, but you know, jumping between tiers is a big thing, but within a tier, you know, if you wanted to rank, you know, three, you flip, you know, guy 13, I'm just, these are picking random numbers, but you want to flip like prospect 13 and 16. I don't think anyone's going to complain, but you know, if you do it between one and two, that's when people like, Oh, okay. And yeah, I mean that, that, that moving Roman Anthony up to number one was not something we took lightly. Um, You know, we solicited a lot of feedback. I talked to a lot of people with teams. Uh, I've seen both of them extensively. I saw them both this season. Uh, I saw Anthony for a week in Greenville and then in Portland after he got promoted, I saw Meyer in Portland also. So, and obviously we also, you know, looked at a bunch of data, just did a deep dive on both of them. And, you know, it's, it's hard because they're both very good players who would probably be the top prospect in most systems, but it's just the Red Sox are in the enviable position where, which they haven't been in a long time, frankly, probably since, you know, the Devers, Moncada that year when they had Ben Intendi, Devers, Moncada, all prospects. Um, they have multiple guys who are, you know, top 20, top 25 prospects in all of baseball. And when you get up to that, you know, when you're talking about guys that good, it, it, you got to get really nitpicky to find a difference. And I, I think that was just going through some of the underlying stuff, the underlying data, and then just talking about um, talking to scouts, talking to see how other teams view the two. I think we just kind of came out that Anthony had a slight advantage based on his last season. And, you know, maybe things would have been a little different if Meyer didn't get hurt, but it's the second straight season he's gotten hurt, which is so it's something now, you know, kind of have to bear watching if he's missing substantial time through injury in multiple seasons. But also, you know, there are just some 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 things that Anthony did last year that were so good. It, it's not really a reflection on Meyer, you know, not us not being as high on Meyer as it is that Anthony just blew away all our expectations and uh, checked all the boxes that we needed to see to make that switch to where, you know, I think that he'll be probably a you know, top 15, 20 prospect nationally on most lists this offseason. Now, one, uh, one, one overarching trend uh, last season that you guys were talking a lot about on uh, on the Sox Prospects uh, podcast was Blaze Jordan and the fact that people get kind of annoyed with you guys for not rating him higher. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not I, – I, I disagree with that, uh, that sentiment. I think he's right where he needs to be. But for Blaze Jordan to take a step forward as a first baseman and to maybe get onto that top 10, like what would, what would he have to do in 2024? I think the, the biggest thing I'd like to see from him is just a more consistent approach at the plate. Um, you know, he got up to double A and I, I think he held his own. And I think that's the one thing that you got to remember with him is he's still 20 years old. You know, he got up to double A as a 20 year old. And I know the minors, we do have to reevaluate how we view, you know, kind of player, moving along the timeline because it's been accelerated now minor league baseball is just not as good the players are not as good as they were and it's i think partially due to the pandemic but also the removal of uh, short season a ball has played a pretty big role in this of just guys get pushed more aggressively now but he still made double a's at 20 year old and held held his own but when you look at um just the numbers like 
he's still he's one of the more aggressive guys at the plate in the sense that he only sees like three point he was in double a was 3.23 pitches per plate appearance and it like as a point of reference roman anthony in double a was 4.41 plate pitches per plate appearance so you're talking you know he's just he's, he's going up there hacking and that can work to a point but there's just a lot of concern from scouts that you know as you move up the levels you're going to get exposed with that approach and when you know when you've got your aggressive um, early encounts, you expand the zone a little too much. Those are the two things I want to see with him. You know, his his calling card is going to be at the plate. When you're limited to first base, it's it's unfair, but that's you know you got to hit. And um, if he can show you know consistently that he can make solid contact, that he can drive the ball over the fence, and that he can improve that approach to where you know because strikeouts aren't really the issue with him. It's just it's the quality of at bats. You know, you got to be more consistent from a bat to a bat and waiting for pitches that you can hit rather than getting yourself out on pitches you can't and expanding the zone. And I think if he can do those things, um, that'll go a long way to answering, you know, a lot of the critics and answering some of the questions about his bats viability long-term. Cause that is the question. It's, you know, the defense is what it is, but if you hit, they'll find a position for you. And um, there's, a, there's upside there, you know, he's got potential. It's just, can that translate on the field? And that, that's something I think that a lot of people have questions about right now, but that's why, you know, We'll see, you know, he's going to get to go to double A next year and he's going to have a chance to show it. And um, yeah, I mean, there, when you see, there will be those times when you see him really get a hold of the ball. It's very impressive. He's got legit raw power. He can hit the ball really hard. Just, I want to see that more consistently from him um, from a bat to a bat and from game to game. I, I got to ask you a question because we, we had Rio Gomez on the show a few episodes back and yeah. he specifically was talking about, Sedan Raffaella mm-hmm. in a way of I think his exact quote to us was that guy has multiple gold gloves coming his way in his career. Mm-hmm. Do you I understand the big thing about him and we've heard it all season long. You hear I, I remember Chad Tracy got asked about it almost every week about Raffaella's like um, about his bat. That's all you ever like talked about. <laughs> I know people talked about his defense. I know he's he was fantastic, but hearing guys that were pitching in front of Rio pitch in front of him in Portland and Worcester last year and pretty much said that guy, it, it, it was the best center field he's ever seen before. So what do you think, like in your honest opinion, now that we, what we know about him, we saw him make his debut this past year. You guys still have him at number four mm-hmm. in the prospect rankings. What is his ceiling? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, his ceiling is a gold glove center fielder who adds value at the plate. Um, the big the big swing is how much value. And I think, you know, we saw the holes when he came up to the major leagues last year. I, I don't think his bat was ready, but I understand why they did it. And, you know, you look at and, and I know I, I don't think, you know, you, can, you can't just look at a stack cast page, especially for a small sample, but. I think when you look at it, it kind of stands out, especially when you compare it with someone like William Bray's page who played about a similar amount of time. You know, Raphael's page, page, there's just a lot of blue, a lot of poor for things like expected batting average, barrel percentage, average exit velocity, chase percentage, K percentage, walk percentage. And it's just a lot of what we've seen in AAA where he can get extremely hot at the plate and have those, you know, have that couple of weeks or week, you know, stretch where he's just killing the ball. But at the end of the day, his approach is still pretty rudimentary, and that's what limits him. And I think that with him, it's you know got to be more selective at the plate. Um, and got, and the biggest thing, and I, I think this is the one, the number, the magic number is going to be the chase rate. You know, he was around forty percent in his minor league career, and generally that's not a number that improves drastically when you get to the majors. There are obviously outliers. Ronald Acuna is a good example of someone who just, he's also a unicorn. So I'm obviously, I'm not comparing anyone to him, but he drastically improved his chase rate in the majors. So it can be done, but it's hard. It's very hard. And you're not generally going to see a guy drop, you know, five, 10 percentage points off their chase rate when they move up against better pitching and around 30% is the number you want to be under. And Rafael is up at 40%. So that's the big swing for me is can he make enough consistent hard contact? Cause a lot of the time, you know, he's got good hand eye coordination. He does have those contact skills, but what it's not, you're not doing anyone any good. If you're, you know, you're swinging at a pitch a foot outside and tapping it back to the pitcher Or I mean, I think we even saw it in his major league, um, you know, that season last or at the end of last season when he was up, I can't remember what game it was, but there was an at bat where he like took a fastball right down the middle and then it was a three, two pitch and he swung at a fastball that hit him. And it's just like, 
that's just not a thing you can do at the major league level. And I understand the defense is insane. I completely agree with Rio and we've seen the value up the middle defense. You need elite athletes up the middle and you need them to be able to play defense. And when you have that, it's both obviously when the outcomes, when the ball is put in play, it's a big deal. But also I, I think that there is something to what, uh, what you guys mentioned Rio was talking about where the mentality, if you're a pitcher, I would feel so much more comfortable with someone like Raphael in center field. You know, if you know that you have a good defensive shortstop, second baseman center fielder behind you, it's gotta be, it's gotta, you know, make you feel better about pitching the contact, especially if you're not one of those guys who's going to go out there and overpower guys. So I think that is, that's some, an area where Rafaela can really add value, but it's just, the variance in his outcomes is still pretty wild for someone who's this close to the major leagues because his bat is just still pretty on the raw side. And yeah, that's, I mean, it's the million dollar question. It's, you know, we've seen him, he, he, there's no question in my mind that he'll put the work and I've seen him, you know, before games doing drills where they literally just throw him pitches in the dirt, the entire batting practice and his batting practice sessions will be completely different than anyone else on the team because they're working on things like this, working on swing decisions, working on, you know, making sure that he's trying to get a pitch that he can actually impact. But there, there's difference between, you know, what you see in practice and how it translates to games and what we've seen from him so far is just, he still struggles to translate that into games. You know, those, that those uh, improvements he's making behind the scenes. And now, you know, he's got a full off season. I think that it was good for him to get some time up in the majors last year to be able to see what, you know, how good big league pitching is and how quickly they adjust to, to hitters. And the question now is, you know, how is he going to put that into work in the off season? How is that going to, you know, is that going to change his approach so that he comes in next season? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a wait and see, but yeah, his upside is, it, you know, it's obviously an everyday player with that defense. It's just, it's hard you're, with what he currently is at the plate. He's not, you're not going to, it's going to be really hard to get to that everyday, everyday level, but you know, that's, that can change. And that's, that's, I think what's fun about this is, you know, we get to see these guys from, you know, when they first enter the system and now all the way to when they may get to the majors and the changes they make. And even, you know, some guys, when they get to the majors are kind of closer to a finished product, others still have, you know, some development remaining. And I think he's more on that end of the scale where I'd like to see him start in AAA and get some more work in and, you know, kind of fine tune his approach because even he doesn't have to end up as like a patient hitter and he's not going to be, but he just needs to get to a point where there's find that balance between being aggressive and not getting himself out or, um, you know, not too often expanding the zone. And, you know, he's got to make swing decisions that allow his natural ability. You know, his, his bat is very quick, you know, things like that to actually play. Um, Cause he does have tools at the plate. It's just, you know, I think it's the approach and more like the finer points of what he, he's got to work on. Now, forgive me if I'm completely off base with this, but were you at the game that he stole like 10 bases and then they yeah. nine bases? What, yeah. what was going on there? Was the catcher just, yeah, catcher was bad. It was, uh, it was Austin Wells and he can't really throw anyone out. Um, that was, yeah, it was, uh, it was up in Portland and it was, it was a, one of the more weird games I've been to in a long time. <laughs> now, um, you mentioned something that I, and it's it's honestly my favorite part of following the minors is that guys aren't going to be the same when they come into the system and whenever they leave it, whether that's being um, being released or making it to the majors. Were there any players this season that you saw them in person last year and then you saw them in 2023 and you were just really impressed by the progress that they've made? Um. Yeah, Um. I think a good example of that would be um, someone like Hunter Dobbins. He was someone that, you know, he didn't pitch very much. He's had his, has had some, you know, injury questions. And I think last year he made like 20 starts, probably under that. He pitched about 60 innings. Um, I thought this season, the way he came out, his fastball got more lively. Like I saw him up to 98, I want to say maybe 99, even Um, I can't remember exactly, but uh, like, yeah, or maybe 97, I guess 97 we'll go with, cause that's what we have on the page, but his, his report's been updated recently, but um, I was really impressed with the changes he made. Uh, he he kind of was working um, with a splitter, which I hadn't seen from him before. And I think it's, it's a little easier with pitchers because guys can just develop a new pitch, which can completely change what they are. But um, I thought his splitter, the was something kind of a newish pitch this year was good. I, you know, it was better than it was change up, which, um, was what he was throwing before, but he's kind of, you know, his slider has really, I think he made some nice changes to it and it's really developed into a true go-to out pitch, you know, potentially like above average offering, which is interesting to me because 
I don't usually love pitchers who have sliders that are that big a gap, like a range in their velos. Like we have them as 84 to 90 on a slider. Cause it's kind of, it's kind of two pitches, but not really like you'll have like a more cutterish one. And then you can add a little more length to it and throw it a little longer, like kind of more of like a gyro slider or whatever. But, um, I, I thought that the adjustments he made this year were pretty impressive. And I, I he's someone I, I, I like and think that if he can stay healthy, there's a chance he's, he's actually got a decent chance to be someone who could be a really nice pitcher at the major league level at some point. I have some some uh, rapid fire questions here. Some about the rankings, some about roster, and sure. one about uh, fast food fried chicken. But we'll we'll do the uh, <laughs> we'll do the uh, the rankings ones first. Um, I was curious. So first one. So out of the top thirty guys ranked on Sox prospects rankings mm-hmm. of the guys that have not made their MLB debut yet. So, and excluding Justin, I know Slayton's in your top 30, and I know if he makes roster, he'll make his debut. But yeah, of the guys that have not made their debut that are in the top 30, who mm-hmm. is the first guy on that list making his debut in 2024? Um, sorry, I'm just scrolling down. No, it's all good. I, I, I threw it out. It's random. I know. Okay. So that Hamilton's out. Uh, Oh, this is okay. So I'm going to cheat. Uh, it, it, the answer is Brian Mata because he has to, oh, or he's not in the okay. system. But I should put him with Slayton. I'll, I won't count him. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think that I think the the only one I, yeah, I think it has to be. I would go, I guess, with Luis Guerrero because I'm looking through the list and I don't see anyone else. Um, who we have like projected for triple a who's not already made their debut and is on that list. So I guess I'll go with Guerrero. Um, I think he's his stuff. If he can get that splitter back to where it was in 2022, at the end of of last season, he was getting, he got some good ones back to it, but he's got one of the more devastating splitters I've seen in um, the system in some time and uh, like crazy spin rate, low spin rate, really good shape. Um, And his fastball, he's got good velo. It's just, finding that because he's a short strider uh it's kind of finding that middle ground you don't want it to be in the dead zone in terms of like not being able to have good carry up in the zone so it's just finding about fine-tuning his fastball shape and kind of i think that's something that the the pitching uh, coordinators and everyone can is can work with him on um if he can you know consistently miss bats and throw enough strikes i think he's someone who could help the bullpen next year because it's 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 actually an interesting exercise because it's weird they have so many guys project we have so many of their guys on that list projected for portland but if you're taking out the guys who have debuted, I actually don't think there's that many who I think will make their debut this season, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, when you look at it, him, and that if I had to go beyond him, I honestly might say Kyle Teal, which is crazy, but I just, yeah, I look, I look at that list. And if you told me that Kyle Teal was just like, I'm the best catcher in, you know, if he just went out to double A and just raked and then got up to triple A and Reese McGuire was still struggling around the deadline. I, don't think that's out of the question i think i said that actually on the podcast before when chris and i got in a long argument about that um where i said that kyle teal is going to make the majors first out of any of those top three prospects in the system so i uh i probably would have to put him under after guerrero and actually i don't think there's anyone else that that's that's that close other than those two all right so that same top 30 list which prospect in that top 30 is most likely gone in a trade if a trade occurs. See, this is hard because I don't really like telling people or like speculating on who's going to be traded. You know what I mean? I'd rather discuss it after the fact because I just think that, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, you don't know, like, it's just weird to me to be like, oh, who's going to be traded? I think that I'm going to, I'm going to dodge the question and answer it that I think the way to look at it is uh, what are the positions of depth now in the system and where are those areas that you could trade from? And I think that you've seen with some of the moves they've made, you know, they've reinforced, um, they've got some depth in the outfield. They've got some depth in the middle infield now, and uh, they've got some depth that's I think a little more depth than the past that, you know, upper minors pitching. So I think those are the three areas if they were to be looking to address um, the MLB pitching staff, which I would guess what that trade would be, would be the areas they would look to deal from. All right, fair. So my next one's going to be Worcester based since I spent a lot of time around, uh, around them and I kind of got to see a lot of those guys in action, but we got to see a few, and I'm focusing on the pitchers. I'll do the hitters next, but 
Mm-hmm. We got to see a few guys come up in the towards the end of the season as well, like Brian Van Bell, uh, Gambrel, and then obviously Drohan came up last year. Uh, we, we saw a few guys come up and make their AAA debut. Um, out of that group, so I saw on on Sox Prospects projected rosters, there's one guy actually from Double uh, A that you guys have in that Zephyr John mm-hmm. on the current 2024 roster. So. W- who's a guy that you could see making that jump? Who's the first guy from that spent the time in double a that you could see making that jump to start the year in triple a? Um, I think that, you know, I'm going to go back to the well. And um, I think there's, there's two ways to look at this. I think that if they need length, if they're looking for a starter, you're, you're looking at, I think Hunter Dobbins is a pretty good guess. Um, he threw like 70 innings in Portland last year. He's a little bit on the older side. You know, he's 24 already just in terms of prospects. Um, so if, he, if he's throwing well at the beginning of the year, and he threw well, obviously, to end the season in Portland. So if he's throwing well at the beginning of the season, I, I, I think he's someone we could see kind of on that Drohan path, you know, end of May gets up to uh, Worcester. And then if you're looking at the relievers, I think that uh, the two who jump out um, is Alex Hoppy. I know he actually, he wasn't up there for very long. He only threw like 14 innings in Portland, but his stuff is really good. You know, he's up in the high nineties, touch a hundred with a decent secondary pitch. So, and I, I think Chris Troy would be the other one. If, if Troy can throw consistent stri- strikes, I, the stuff is really good. Um, fastball shapes really good. There's a lot to like there. It's just, you know, finding consistency from outing and outing and throwing consistent strikes. And if, you know, if, if, if those guys can come out, you know, show that, they're both missing bats and throwing strikes at the double a level there there's and if there's room in Worcester I think those are the the two bullpen arms we could see get promoted uh, relatively quickly and I'm assuming other than Zephyr John since you guys have him yeah I I already had him we had him projected for Worcester already so I just kind of for the the, for the exercise I wasn't including him fair I got I have an important question um (laughs) you uh you're hungry and you, uh, you're you're gonna go hop in your car, and you okay. want some fast food fried chicken. It can be a sandwich, strips, whatever it is. You have all of the options available for your choosing. It's got to be drive through. Where are you going? Well, so, so this is this might shock you. I've actually never had uh, raisin cane, Zaxby's, or like half of the options for this. So, wow. um. Yeah, so I, I don't, I if I had to pick one, um, I guess I would have Popeyes, but that's the closest one to me. Okay, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I think I, yeah, I'm gonna have to say incomplete here because I'm guessing I haven't had a lot of the options that people uh, choose from when they're given this question. Are you gonna be down at the complex in February? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I go to Fort Myers every year. I will be down there. But so there is a Zaxby's that is, uh, I think it's like less than a mile from the complex. You got to go. Really? You got to try it. At least try it. Or there's a place that John Schreiber recommended to us called PDQ. Uh, actually, a few guys have recommended to us. It's on my list. He said that's the best fried chicken place of all time. Um, but yeah, that Popeye's has been a, I feel like that's been answered a few times, Ed. I think. Yeah, more recently, we were having for it felt like the first few weeks of that one, it was just Chick Fil A, and then now we've got a couple Popeyes and a couple, uh, couple Zach. I mean, we had Alex Benellis on, and he's apparently a big uh, Zaxby's junkie. But so um, I, it's funny because I, I the only place I've ever, I didn't know there was a Zaxby's in Fort Myers. I've actually I've seen one. Um, when I was in Salem, I saw one. Yeah, and uh, it just wasn't open for some when I every because the games just ended late, and it just I don't know, it wasn't open when I drove by, so I just never went to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't really have, I don't think we have that up in Boston. So nope. Um, we have Popeye's though. They're starting to get canes up here. They, yeah, there's one, there's one over by BU, but I've never been to it. Um, but I just know, cause I know there's a Popeye's, um, yeah, there, there's Popeye's close. So that's the only one. There used to be that one right next to Fenway that that, that no longer uh, is no longer there. Yeah. I I think Popeye's is, uh, as long my, my theory of this entire, uh, this entire podcast is that it was just a very elaborate scheme for Parker to get a Zaxby sponsorship. Probably. I, I mean, I, I was going to, I was wondering if there was this, this was a sponsored segment, but I think it's just, he he's aiming for it. Listen, man, I I can't get it sponsored if none of the, the guests actually uh, say it, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, every time I ask it, I've I've gotten two people, it's Josh Lester and Alex Benellis are the only two of the 49 guests. It's, uh, 
absolutely insane. <laughs> Steven Scott just said he just wants a big bucket of KFC, which I love that out of him. So, um, but I, I can't get enough people to say Zach's because I'm going to have to switch to like Canes or something since they just opened here in Marlboro. So, <laughs> I don't know. And I'm, I'm batting like, I'm like two for 49 at this point. So, um, but, it's a short sample size. It's a short well, sample Let's empty size, the bench bro. here. What do we got from you, Ed? I, so this is something that I've always wondered, Ian. Back before you were, you were a scout, and back before you were so knee deep in all of this stuff, mm-hmm. which Red Sox team was your favorite growing up, and who was your favorite player as a kid? Um. Oh wow, that's a good question. I actually haven't thought about this in years. Um. So my favorite player was not a Red Sox actually growing oh, up. Who wasn't Scott Rowland? Good, good answer though. The NL's Nomar Garcia Parra. Yeah, I, 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 Scott Rowland was my favorite player by far. I don't know why. Um, but the only, I have like two jerseys from when I was a kid, and one of them is a Scott Rowland Cardinals jersey, and the other is a, uh, and that's the only, actually, that's the only authentic jersey I think I have from when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just liked watching him play a lot, and, uh, he was, he was my favorite player. Um, I would say, my favorite Red Sox team. So I guess you got to say what, I guess what, 04 is the most popular answer? Or um, I don't, we don't usually ask this one because we don't have a lot of like Red Sox exclusive. Like, you so, know, like a lot of these, none of these players are. <laughs> okay. Awesome so I, I'm going to, I can't remember. So this is, this is, I'm actually going to hedge because I can't remember if this was 04 or 07. I think it was, it would have been. Basically, there was one year where Jordan's furniture offered free furniture for uh, for your like entire basically free furniture if you purchase during a certain amount of time. And uh, I'm younger, so I was obviously still living with my I was still I wasn't even in high school, actually, or I just barely got in high school during that time. And um, I remember we got a bunch of furniture and then got it for free because the Red Sox won the World Series. So that, that team is my favorite because we got free furniture out of it. That you know, they did that this last year, right? Well, they, so they kept changing it because I remember, I think it, it must have been 07 because. No, it was probably, no, it was probably 04. It was probably 04 because I know that they changed it. And then the second time, um, and yeah, it was, it was, it had to have been 04. And then in 07, uh, they changed, the Red Sox had to sweep the World Series for you to get the free furniture because obviously their insurance people didn't like that they gave away like millions of dollars in furniture with the first one. And then they swept anyway. And so, yeah, I think it, it would have to be 04. But, um, that would be why that, that's the reason is my parents, that's, you know, my family is, got free furniture out of reason. it. So, yeah. So this is my my final question, and this is more of an inside Sox prospects question. But uh, there's there's that ongoing conspiracy theory that you and Chris Hatfield hate each other, and, <laughs> and, and I know that that's not true. But I, I was just wondering, what's your favorite thing about working with Chris? Um, I I mean I I think Chris does a great job. I I think his attention to detail is really impressive, and uh, I think it doesn't get talked about enough, but uh, he he looks at all the scouting reports that I put up. He looks over them and uh, with a fine tooth comb and does a really nice job of putting my really baseball-y terms into things that people can understand. Because if you read them initially, I I go in the weeds. You know, I'm using terminology that I probably shouldn't be using that, you know, a lot of people, some people understand, some people won't. And I think Chris does a really good job of uh, of getting them to the point where they're more readily readable for, you know, the public. And, um, I think that, yeah, his attention to detail is really impressive. He does a great job of keeping everything kind of on task and making sure that, um, we don't really miss anything, it, whether, and it'll be even like the smallest thing, you know, something in a, it, I'll write up, you know, an entire scattering report and there'll be one line that he'll be fixated on that needs to be fixed. And I really appreciate how good he is at that. So yeah, I'd say that, that, was one, that was one thing yeah. for me when I started doing the, um, the social media that I was, Initially, I was always like, why is he being so like nitpicky about this? But you get better so quickly. Yeah, from it. no, he's like, he's re- he's really good at that stuff. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, no. I, and I will say that we it, yeah, for the record, we do not hate each other. Um, <laughs> I, I will say we disagree on things like I think maple syrup is extremely overrated and I stand by that. And I know there are a lot of people who don't like me who don't like that. But I I maintain that if pancakes are good enough, they should be able to withstand not having maple syrup on them. It's just, that's just how I, how I, what I believe. And yeah, so I'll stand by that. That That's probably, 
that is one of the biggest disagreements I think we've ever had on the podcast was that take by me. And I heard from a lot of people who did not agree with me. So I, I think I might be on an island with that. But um, we do not hate each other for the record. That is tough. Pancakes without syrup. I feel like it's yeah, just way I, too dry. Well, I'm not eating like normal. Yeah, that's why you have like blueberry pancakes or berries in them. Like I'm not fair. having basic pancakes. That's boring. Like make right, interesting fair. pancakes and then you don't eat maple syrup. That's my – I'll leave on that. <laughs> I got in trouble Diego's, last episode. Right? This. You, the number of baseball people who text me and being like bad take, I was like – I. I took some L's out when the last time I said this, but I'm just going to double down because why not? It's 2024. We all have them, man. We all have our bad food takes. It's just, it is what it is. But yeah, um, I did want to say before we go, I do want to shout out. I don't know if it's you or who it is at Sox prospects that updates those rosters so quickly in the middle of the season, or even now, like you guys are on top of that. Oh, that's that- yeah. That that's uh. Well, we we talk about it, but that's Chris and Mike do uh, do a great job. They're on top of that, and James Holy Dunn too. Cow. So the rest of the brass does a does a great job uh, keeping up on that and making sure it's as accurate as possible. Because I I mean I don't know I I use that page all the time. It's what I reference whenever I whenever a transaction goes down. So it's really nice to have it uh, updated quickly, and it's never you know lagging behind when stuff is happening. I'll tell the you, first man, time it's- I met uh, first time I met Andrew. Um, this was at the uh, in the press box uh, for the Woo Sox, and he goes, "Hey, hey!" And he like taps me on the shoulder. He goes, "Look at this!" And he has like the Sox prospects cap up, and he's just like, "I always have this up." <laughs> no, I appreciate. But I think it. you I mean, thought that I was the one doing that. I think you thought I was the. one I did. Doing it. I was like, not. "Dude, you're updating this so quickly! Like, this is amazing." I think somebody had just gotten called up, and it was already updated on there, and, I, and it was already like backfilled. Like, you know, all the call ups had happened, and it was already backfilled. I'm like, "This is amazing." Well, like, yeah, I mean, we. we it's it's we're that's one thing we we, yeah we definitely we as soon as something happens we're talking about it um in our channels and like trying to figure out you know what's the you know what's gonna happen and some of it's guessing some of it's we'll find out stuff a little early and be able to get it on there earlier um but yeah it's uh i appreciate it that's it's something we, we we take good pride in so i really appreciate it oh it's um always open on my computer it's open right now um, it's, it's just an amazing tool. And, and when you see guys like Chris Cotillo and, you know, all the, you know, even Brad and all the guys, like even like anytime I write something, I always, uh, link it back to Sox prospects. I see Chris do the same thing. Everybody it's, uh, all of us are very thankful for it. And, um, Ian, thank you so much for your time. You've given us 51 minutes, uh, about to be 52 actually. But, um, I guess one last thing really quickly before you go, I need a, final score prediction of the national championship game not gonna nope. give it nope i don't uh i'm not right. tempting fate fair i like it actually um do you very superstitious with uh with certain sporting teams and this is okay one of fine them, so. well, let me rephrase <laughs> the question then and you just gotta give me a yes or no answer is the line of i think the line was five i think michigan was I think it's four and a half favorite. now or something yeah is that fair or is that accurate or unaccurate do you think um yeah i mean i think that i i I think we have a very good team uh i will be in attendance so i like our chances and um we'll see i mean it's gonna be a tough game washington's a really good opponent so we'll see i like it stay humble before don't want to be on uh freezing cold takes or whatever that is so i respect it a deserving team is going to win the national championship this year i think that's a great matchup you got two undefeated teams it's the way it should be so i'm looking forward to it and and, you know we'll see what happens anyone can win on any game couldn't agree more but uh have a great time in houston for that and uh we will see you at some point uh maybe at the complex wherever it's going to be but uh ian thank you so much for your time oh thanks for having me guys it's a lot of fun as always